So the next uh, speaker on the dais uh, has entitled his uh, talk, The Only Thing That Stays the Same is Change. And uh, this speaker is someone who never stays the same, so we're delighted to uh, have uh, Joe Iron come and uh, talk to us about the new drugs that are um, recently developed and in development uh, to help us continue to look to the future. Joe is a professor of medicine at the University of North Carolina uh, and uh, is uh, well known to everyone in this audience uh, from multiple appearances in San Francisco. In fact, the only place he isn't known is in North Carolina because he isn't seen there much anymore. So <laughs> welcome, Joe. Uh, well, well, thanks, Chip. Um, it's, it's wonderful to be here. I, I really um, enjoy talking to this group just because you guys are, are so um, sophisticated and, and smart, and, and uh, um, I think the panel was a great example of that. It was really uh, terrific to hear the insights that, that uh, uh, people had, so um, I, I consider myself lucky. Um, so I'm going to talk about new drugs. Um, there's a little bit of overlap with what other people have um, uh, spoken about already, but, but I'll try to go quickly and maybe give you my, my own interpretation of things. Um, these are my uh, potential uh, conflicts here. Uh, these are um, what I intend to do with the, uh, with the um, presentation. Uh, talk a little bit about why do we need new drugs, because obviously things seem to be going relatively well. Um, list some advantages of recently approved drugs, and I think Eric and Chuck have done a lot of that already, and then, and then talk about um, some drugs that are in development that are of a new mechanism of action. And I, I, I have a, just a few questions in here to get some feedback. Um, I think that everyone here knows the, the goals of therapy. I don't have to really go into it um, too deeply. Obviously, it's not a viral load less than 50 or 20 or 40, whatever assay you use. It's really to maintain and restore the health of, of the people that we care for. But obviously, we do that through suppressing replication. I, I think now, you know, one of the things is to minimize and eliminate short and long-term toxicity. And that's really one of the key things with, with new drugs that we're trying to do. Um, and then we need therapies that are accessible to all people living with HIV. And, and I, I was listening to Ellen and, and thinking about adolescence and thinking about you know, long-acting therapy and, and, and maybe that is a, a, a group who might uh, respond to long-acting therapy. Maybe not injectable long-acting therapy, but, but maybe something um, uh, much like the choices we have in, in, in birth control, for example, now. Uh, and, and then, obviously, uh, as uh, 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 Susan Buckbinder said, another goal, of course, is to prevent transmission to others. Um, you guys have seen these data already. It's amazing how much the share data looks like the, the uh, start data. Um, we should try to superimpose those curves, actually, because I was struck by how similar they are. This is the START study. I think everybody's aware of this, that no matter how high your CD4 is, starting therapy uh, improves outcome, um, and, and not subtly, by, by, by more than 50%, and, and not trivially. Uh, there were three times as many cancers in the deferred arm as the uh, in terms of the, the immediate arm. And I think the reason I put uh, the, the slide in there is just this is the, on the, this is the patients, uh, the participants on this study who got immediate therapy. And, and one is how quickly they got on therapy. And two is over um, uh, 60 months or five years, 
the suppression rate was between you know, 92 and 95%. So if drugs are available, in the START study you could have almost any drug you wanted. There was a menu, you could switch, you could stay on study. Um, and, and that works, right? And so the next question is, well, well, why is this guy up here talking about new drugs? Uh, what we have works really well. And, and, and I think the reasons are, um, if you think about it, um, if someone's 25 and they come into your care tomorrow, they're going to need to be treated for six decades. It's a long time. And then one of Ellen's babies is going to have to be treated for 80 years, unless, unless we have a cure, which we could have, we might have. Um, uh, we're, we're working on it. But, um, so these therapies must be incredibly safe, right, um, and maximally tolerated. Um, and include a range of, of choices. And we have to limit all the things that you've heard about already today, renal, cardiovascular, liver, bone. Um, we heard in Chuck's um, uh, presentation, you know, we don't know a lot about drugs in pregnancy. We don't know about dolutegravir. We don't know about exactly how to dose darunavir. We don't really know um, uh, for sure exactly the right dose of atazanavir. We don't know a lot. And then therapeutic options for infants are incredibly limited. So we need new drugs, new drugs for that reason. People have adherence issues, life chaos issues, treatment fatigue, um, this kind of, you know, just getting tired of taking pills. And then as our patients age, there are just a ton of drug-drug interactions that we have to worry about, right? I mean, there's just a ton of, of drug interactions. And, and so we really, you know, P, uh, CYP3A4 inhibition is one of them, but there are many. And then remarkably, uh, if you look at uh, the Scenics cohort or the Any Accord, which is a huge North American cohort, about anywhere from 15, 10 to 15% of people in care are not on treatment. And I don't think it's because we're bad providers. I think there are lots of reasons why people don't get on treatment, like mental health issues, access to clinic. In North Carolina, transportation issues are, are a big uh, problem. And then there's the issue of clinic capacity, just getting people into clinics. So, um, and, and then finally, the one reason we've always needed new drugs has been uh, for resistant viruses. So what about drugs uh, in kind of currently available classes? Well, we've already kind of, um, I think, beaten uh, uh, TAF or tenofovir elefenamide, uh, it's tenofovir elefenamide, that fumarate it doesn't belong there, I apologize for that, just tenofovir elefenamide. Um, we, we've kind of beaten that one to, uh, to death. Um, it is a smaller milligram dose, perhaps you can use it at lower uh, uh, renal function. It, it clearly has less bone toxicity, I think that's unequivocal. Uh, and it, it, I think, clearly has less renal tubular effects um, I think that's true. Um, whether it has less long-term renal uh, uh, adverse events or adverse effects, I think is something we'll learn. I think that it, it's plausible and it seems likely, but, but as Eric pointed out, it's unproven. Um, and it does actually have activity against uh, some NNRTI-resistant variants because it gets such high concentrations, maybe more active than TDF, um, but that ha hasn't really been tested. It's hard to test. Then I'll, I'll say a little bit more about Duraverine. Duraverine is an NNRTI with limited CNS side effects, no food requirement or PPI interaction, and the phase three trials are underway. This GS9883, it's a, that's a stealth drug. That's an integrase, unboosted integrase inhibitor being developed by um, uh, a, a company in southern, and, and a company in south of here, just a little bit south of here. Um, 
And um, remarkably, they've not shown us any phase two data. And the phase three studies are almost fully enrolled. So I, I've actually never seen that. Chip, maybe you've, you've seen that where, where a company actually has sequestered their phase two data. Um, so I, don't, I know very little about this drug. I can't show you a slide about it or anything. I can tell you it's not boosted and it can be co-formulated with, with uh, TAF and FTC. That's what I can tell you. Um, and that's it. Um, and then uh, two-drug therapy, and I think Chuck and Eric kind of dealt with that. Um, so I was, I'm, I'm getting information from you that, that, so I can bring it back to North Carolina where, where I can then uh, 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 enlighten my colleagues. So here's the first question. How will you manage your patients who are currently on TDF-containing regimens? So choice one is I will continue TDF and those who are stable without side effects, so I'm just going to leave them alone. Um, I will switch all my TDF patients to TAF-containing regimens. As soon as they come in, I'm switching them. Or perhaps you're going to prioritize specific patients, or you're not sure. So, so go ahead and vote. Yeah, I, I think that's how I would settle out too. I'll, there, I'll prioritize certain patients. It, as far as I know, the, 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 the combination therapies with TAF as opposed to TDF, there are, they are cost neutral. Um, and so if I think they're cost neutral, I, I, think, I don't think there's a, a logical reason to avoid switching. The one group of, of um, patients that I'm unsure of are my patients who are perfectly happy on a Favrin, Sanofi, or FTC. Because obviously then I would have to change not only their uh, TDF and FTC, but I'd have to change their, their third drug. And I guess most of those people probably, people are changing anyway, but I have some um, patients who say, this drug is fine for me, I don't really want to change. So that's the only one where I'm not completely sure, but I think changing makes sense. And I'm, I'm going to just skip these because Eric's kind of dealt with it. These are, this is the bone uh, mineral density uh, in what, uh, several of the large uh, TDF to TAF switch studies. And you can see it's about a 1.5% uh, gain in bone mineral density. So I, I do think that, that if you have someone who is at risk for osteopenia osteoporosis, this is a, a switch to make. And, and there are are unequivocal improvements in proximal renal tubular function, but they happen right away. So it makes me think that this is more of a kind of tubular um, secretion um, as opposed to uh, uh, fixing, you know, tubular damage because it really happens quite quickly. Um, and then I, I kept this one in there just because um, this is that one study. Chuck showed some of the data, but this is just, uh, again, it's a single-arm study. The numbers of patients in each group is pretty small. Um, but what you can see, if you break it down by median baseline uh, uh, estimated GFR uh, over two years um, on a TAF-containing regimen, it's, it's pretty flat. And there, again, like any study, you were supposed to be ab uh, above 30 at screening, and, and some small number, uh, 10 total patients were actually less than 30 um, uh, because between screening and entry. But again, you can see it's relatively stable. But I, I think I agree with Chuck and Eric that the data are pretty, uh, are pretty um, uh, limited uh, on, on the, the lower creatinine clearance. Um, there is an ongoing study of 
L-vitegravir, Cobicistat, TAF, FTC in dialysis patients, single tablet once a day in dialysis patients, which those of you who take care of dialysis patients, all my dialysis patients are in crazy regimens. They take tenofovir once a week. They take, you know, either 50 or 100 milligrams of 3DC either every day or with dialysis. Then they're on, you know, their third agent. So to have a single tablet for dialysis I think would be quite useful. Here are the Duravarine data. So Duravarine, as I mentioned, is an NNRTI. It's been compared to a Favarin's head-to-head in a phase two study. So 2B study. So about 100 and some people per, per each arm. Uh, and it, it is 100 milligrams as opposed to 600 milligrams. Both were dosed with FTC-TDF. Um, and uh, the number that were not suppressed at week 48 was very similar between the two groups, though fewer patients discontinued uh, due to adverse events. And you can see overall they, they were pretty similar in terms of their result. Um, this proportion seems a little bit less than we've been seeing with integrase studies, so, so it was a relatively small study. So. Um, these difference, the, the, the um, precision of these estimates is, is not uh, really great. If you looked in um, uh, those patients that had lower viral loads, they were, uh, you know, the, the same. In higher viral loads, there was a, a numeric difference. And this, you know, uh, raised some concern with the, the, with the program chairs. Um, it was different. That's not statistically significantly different. Um, but it is, it is different, and, and I think the phase three study will, will, will tell us. The difference here is mostly in discontinuations, not in virologic failures. Um, but um, the, obviously, the, if the phase three study is, is Duravarin's not better than Efavarin's, or at least as good, I think that then this won't be an option going, going forward. It does seem to have less uh, CNS effects. Um, if you look at like dizziness, for example, uh, abnormal dreams, uh, obviously substantially higher with a Favrin's headache. Um, insomnia, it's the other way around. And, and you might remember that we saw the same thing with dolutegravir, right? In the head-to-head with dolutegravir Favrin's, there was more um, insomnia in the dolutegravir group. So I don't know whether this is an effect of duravarine and dolutegravir, or is this a, a removal of an effect, or is it actually a, 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 an effect of a favarins on making people sleepy? So I'm, I'm not sure, but there is, that, is a, that is a difference. Okay, so um, uh, Chuck already preempted this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Have you, in your practice, used two-drug therapy, like a boosted PI, 3TC, or uh, dolutegravir, 3TC, or FTC, or maybe uh, an integrase plus an NNRTI, or an integrase plus a boosted PI. Have you used that in your practice, yes or no? Interesting. Yeah, I, I've sound like Eric was actually doing that relatively frequently using darunavir, ritonavir, 3TC. I, I've not used it very commonly at all in, in my practice, but um, it sounds like uh, 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 maybe some, some people have at least about 30%, um, and, and everybody knows what I'm talking about. That's good. Um, so these are the data that Chuck already showed. I'm not going to uh, do it again, but it's two drug therapy. I will mention that the ACTG is doing a larger study of dolutegravir 3TC. 
um, in 150 patients, and they're allowing viral loads up to 500,000. So we'll get some more data on that. Um, there was a publication, I don't know if anybody saw it, of, of dolutegavir monotherapy. It just came out in, um, uh, I think, uh, J-AIDS from an Italian group. It was only nine uh, patients that apparently refused to take any nucleosides. They were treatment naive. All nine were suppressed for anywhere from six to 12 months. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I think, you know, uh, and there are large studies being considered pretty much based on the data that Chuck showed that this might be very cost effective um, if, if successful. Um, another two drug therapy is an integrase plus uh, an NNRTI, here's cabotegravir plus ropivirine. These are in suppressed patients. And many of you probably know there's a large study called SWORD, um, actually two studies called SWORD, that are looking at patients who were suppressed on therapy that were then randomized to either stay on what they're on or go on dolutegravir ropivirine. Uh, and we probably will have data on those studies maybe by um, the CROI meeting a, a year from now or, or around that time. Um, the advantage to that, of course, there are no PIs involved, no nucleosides involved, and, and if it's dolutegravir ropivirine, two small tablets that you, you hope you don't drop because they're so small and you, you might not find them. So, um, Okay, so what, what, what else might we do um, uh, to maintain therapy for life? What's another new strategy? Well, we, we know we have difficulty with adherence. There's hard-to-reach populations, substance use, depression, perhaps children and adolescents, and then there's this life chaos that we all experience um, uh, in, in the form of travel, dislocation, and, and, uh, and, and refugees, or, or even, you know, you could imagine, um, you know, like, it doesn't have to be in, in, in southern Africa or, or, or Syria. It could, it could be in, in New Orleans, uh, for example, with a, with a hurricane. People get dislocated, they, they lose their medicine, um, so, so long-acting therapy is a potential uh, to be used. And, and Eric's talked about this. Both cabotegravir and ropivirine have been formulated as nanosuspensions and be, can be given as, as an injection. Uh, it has to be IM. You heard about that. And, and I just want to mention that this was very... This is one of the first studies. This is, I think, now published of a single injection of this cabotegravir. Um, and with a single injection, uh, this time frame is not hours or days, it's actually weeks. With a single injection, you could detect at least some drug up to 36, 40, even, even 48 weeks. Um, and, and I guess it, it, this was incredibly exciting. Uh, but I, I will say, you know, things get kind of scaled back. Eric mentioned that um, the study uh, LATTE2 looked at every four weeks and every eight weeks, and the phase three studies might just be every four weeks, despite the fact that every eight weeks looked pretty good. And then he showed you the eclair data, which was um, cabotegravir as a prevention, or, or at least as a PK for prevention, every 12 weeks. But that's being scaled back now to every eight weeks. So despite this data, um, you know, it, it, it takes time to, de to develop these things. This is a particularly exciting new drug. This is um, called EFDA. It's actually a nucleoside analog. Um, so someone is actually developing a nucleoside analog. So a nucleoside analog and an NNRTI are being developed. Keep that in mind. And I did mention there was also um, 
maybe an integrase in development. Uh, I haven't mentioned any protease inhibitors, and, and I won't, um, so, <laughs> just for the purposes of answering questions. But, but anyway, this, this drug is really interesting because it's not only a, a, a reverse transcriptase inhibitor, it actually keeps, it blocks the RT enzyme from moving along. So it's actually both a, 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 a reverse transcriptase inhibitor and it prevents translocation. It, it causes the RT to be stuck. And so this is its relative activity. This is, this is in uh, cells. So this is a, actually SIV replication in cells. So this isn't in humans. But here's the activity of, of uh, tenofovir. Here's the activity of EFDA. It's about 1,000 times more potent. Um, and its half-life in PBMC and macrophage is in, measured in um, hundreds of hours. And um, this is uh, data that was presented at CROI on only six patients. And you can see a nice viral load drop of about one and a half, maybe 1.7 logs over 250 hours or 10 days. You might say, so what? You're on, you know, there are a bunch of drugs like that. This is a single 10 milligram dose, one dose of 10 milligrams. And they also showed, uh, the manufacturers also showed that this can be formulated uh, to be given as a sub-Q injection. Not, not IM, but sub-Q injection. Um, and it has the capability of being uh, potentially formulated in one of these. Who knows what that is? That's implanon or explanon. Or, um, uh, so it's possible that uh, this drug, and hopefully, obviously, you would need more than one for treatment, but you might not need more than one for prevention, could be put, put in this material, whatever it is. And, and, and not only can it be... Um, uh, placed subcutaneously and lasts for weeks and or months, it can also be removed. That's the other thing that wasn't mentioned about those injectable drugs. You inject them, they're there. You, you can't get them out. So if someone has a reaction to them, uh, they're in there, um, and, and they don't come out. Um, and then another, this is almost science fiction, but it could happen. People can actually make these recombinant virus vectors that express proteins. And it's possible if your um, treatment is a protein, you could actually get this vector to, to make the, the protein, the treatment. Now, who here has ever given a protein or a peptide as treatment? Anybody ever do that for HIV? Sure you have. Right? Infuvertide, T20, Fusion. Um, so people are actually thinking about making... Um, uh, uh, fusion inhibitors that could actually be um, produced by the body kind of continuously uh, in, a, in a vaccine vector. Now, that's pretty science fiction, but it but could happen. Could happen. Okay, so when we think about new drugs, we think about um, uh, resistance, right? I mean, resistance will, will always be with us. Um, we have to treat people for decades and decades. Unfortunately, we, we ha still have people in the developed or resource-rich world uh, who've been exposed to suboptimal treatment in the past. And I think the issue in the resource-limited setting is not so much the drugs, it's the monitoring, right? It's the lack of monitoring that's really the issue. And then we've heard about uh, this issue of transmitted drug resistance, and what Ellen said was, like, scary um, uh, in, the, in the young, newly infected adolescents and and that study in California uh, that Chuck mentioned from Joe Volpe, uh, the, the uh, extent of transmitted drug resistance. Uh, so how often in your practice do you see patients with virologic rebound and resistance, 
so both, uh, and the resistance is to one or more drugs in three or more classes. So I'm not talking about, you know, uh, 184V, 103N. I'm talking about people that have uh, uh, what I would call multi-drug resistance. So tell me when you see this, how often, once a week, once a month, almost never. I'm real, yeah, me, me too, me too, yeah. All very, very, very uncommon here in, in the U.S. I, I completely agree with that, um, which makes it really hard to develop these drugs for multi-drug resistant virus. The problem is, is that a lot of us do see it every once in a while, so these people need drugs. So in the next five years, it's kind of a similar question, but, but along the same lines. In the next five years, how many patients in your practice will actually, do you think you'll, will need a new drug from a new class to treat resistant virus. So, so go, go ahead and vote. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I, I'm, I am totally right with you on this. Um, I think the one or two people that are going to see a lot, that the, the companies that are developing new, these new drugs that are specifically targeting resistant viruses should, should come, and, come and see you. Um, no, I'm, I'm, but I'm honestly serious about that because I think we will need these drugs, but we'll need them for a very small number of people. I'll show you my thoughts in a second. So this is, these are data from the UK um, and about almost 9,000 people, and they looked at virologic failure and resistance. These are people on first-line therapy, and, and it happened to be tenofovir-containing first-line therapy, because that's the analysis they were doing when I begged them to give me this information. And basically, over a five-year period, less than 10% had virologic failure, and uh, less than 5% had a resistance mutation. So with monitoring, and, and it's just not very common. We just don't, don't see it all that much. We see people that stop taking therapy or not adherent or aren't adherent to care. Um, but I will say this is kind of my clinic. So I'm, I'm like whoever hit the button of you know, once every six months. Uh, in, in my setting, um, uh, viremic patients with multi-drug resistance is really kind of not very common. However, I do have quite a few patients that are currently suppressed on therapy that have multi-drug resistant virus. And I worry about them every time they show up because they're on dolutegravir, etravirine, or rapilvirine plus boosted uh, darunavir, and I think, please be su suppressed, please be suppressed. Because I don't know what I'm gonna do necessarily if they're not suppressed. Um, uh, so, so I think this is our situation here. Um, and, and so that's why I think we, we Little by little, we might need new drugs that work by new mechanisms. In the developed world, in the developing world, the resource-limited world, it's very different, right? So sec this is the second-line study presented by Mark Boyd. Uh, they had about 500 patient samples who were failing first-line therapy, and 97 had, had resistance, and almost all of them had uh, two-drug resistance. And, and um, uh, uh, 
I can't do math anymore. Two-thirds of them uh, had two NRTI mutations. And here's some of that data. You know, that, uh, many of them had K65R or uh, a K70E. Some had multi-nucleoside resistance mutations like the 69 insert. So, so uh, clear uh, tenofovir resistance. And this is the Tenores study that Susan Buckbinder talked about, where if you look in the de developing world, the proportion of, of patients that have TDF, NRTI, and then uh, TDF, NRTI, and M14V is, is approaching, you know, um, uh, 30 or 40 percent. And, and if you look at tenofovir resistance, it's about almost 60 percent. So that's what uh, um, Susan was talking about. Now, these are in failures. They're not everybody, right? It's just the, the failures. And, and failures are, are not that common, but they're happening all the time. So we need new agents that work. Uh, against resistant virus, and I'll just talk about the new drugs in a new class. Um, one is maturation inhibitors. Uh, people might remember there was a maturation inhibitor that was in development called Bavirimat uh, some time ago. The way maturation inhibitors work, that you know, the gag protein is made in one big string, and the protease has to chop it up. That's where protease inhibitors work. If you don't chop it up, then what happens is you get um, uh, a uh, immature virus. So uh, this drug, the, uh, it's no, no longer a BMS drug, but that's its number, um, actually blocks cleavage here. So it's not a protease inhibitor. It, it blocks, it binds to this protein, uh, uh, this GAG uh, protein, SP1, uh, P24 uh, cleavage site, and results in an immature virus. The advantage to this particular compound over Vivirumat is it's once a day. Uh, it has clear activity. You can see at, at the higher doses, um, you get about one and a half logs of activity. It's got a long half-life, so you see persistence of activity after the drug is stopped. It's pretty well tolerated. And unlike Bavirimat, it seems to work against strains that have a little bit of variation in that binding site. So um, this is a, a relatively promising drug. And when combined with, with atazanavir, so two-drug therapy, again, small numbers. Look at the numbers here, small, eight people, um, uh, over a 28-day period looked pretty effective. So this drug is something that I think will probably move forward. Um, uh, this, these compounds were bought by another company, uh, Vive Healthcare. Uh, so uh, I don't yet know the plans, uh, what the phase three studies will be, but it's a, a new class of drugs that is in clinical development. And then we have this drug, which is an attachment inhibitor. So it binds to the virus envelope, right? So it binds to the virus envelope, uh, the GP120 part, not the GP41 part where we're fusion or, or enfuvertide bound. And it prevents a conformational change so the virus can't enter. Once again, if you look at um, uh, monotherapy, you can see about one and a half logs of activity, though, though not quite as robust as that maturation inhibitor. It, it is a BID drug, so it's you know, not really ever going to be, I think, developed for first line. Um, but it is in phase three studies. So um, it, it's in phase three study. The phase three studies are almost fully enrolled, very highly experienced patients. They had to have uh, resistance to at least one drug in, all, in three or more classes. So um, this is the kind of uh, viruses we were talking about before. Uh, but like many um, uh, things that bind envelope, right, envelope is so variable that it's not active against every virus. So it, it probably will require a sensitivity assay. 
And then I'm just going to mention broadly neutralizing antibodies because everybody mentions them because they're sexy. Um, they, we have developed these neutralizing antibodies that can neutralize over 90% of viruses. Um, so, so maybe half as good as sequinavir. Um, uh, that's a joke. Um, it's meant to, meant to dig the broadly neutralizing antibody people. Um, but it is possible if you combined enough of them uh, to get very strong activity at very low concentrations. So it's possible that in our lifetimes, or for the people without gray hair, in your lifetime, uh, that we might see broadly neutralizing antibodies as a form of therapy as, a, as opposed to a form of prevention. I think it's plausible, uh, but, but I think it will, will take some time to, to get there. Um, so uh, that's my talk. Um, I, I, uh, when I, I gave a talk at Croy, and my boss, I said, what am I going to talk about? Antiretrovirals. I mean, just take the medicine. You know, that was going to be my talk. Um, but my boss reminded me that, you know, there's always been these changes. The virus was discovered. Then we had uh, Zydovian monotherapy within uh, uh, four years. Uh, Ten years later, we had triple drug therapy with a huge handful. Ten years later, we were down to a single tablet. I'd argue that in the last, uh, you know, uh, maybe two or three years, we've entered the integrase inhibitor era. I haven't shown this slide, but it's basically in our clinic, about 80% of patients are now started on integrase inhibitors. And maybe by um, 2020 or a little after, we'll have long-acting therapy. And who knows, maybe by uh, the end of the next decade, we'll have long-term implantable therapy. So thank you very much. Okay, thank you both for the uh, lowdown on the individual drugs and also this big picture, which I think uh, helps put a lot of the reason for the research into perspective because I think a lot of times it's easy to get lost in the trees and not really see what's happened to the forest over the last uh, number of years. Are there questions for uh, Dr. Iran related to new drugs or anything you want to ask him about anything? He said he'll, this is the... Sure. Bathrooms. Actually, when I went to lunch, the, the men's bathroom was actually closed, and I thought maybe that was a message. Um, just, closed to, just closed to you. <laughs> just closed to me, right. They, they said, it said <laughs> they wanted to the scan my room. birth certificate. So, uh, Susan. I just wanted to say a beautiful talk, and that um, in terms of preventive therapy, for those of you who are providers in uh, the Bay Area, we actually are doing a preventive monoclonal antibody study. Outstanding, right? Um, which is uh, an, effect, uh, an efficacy study. It's a phase 2B. The proof concept and also to see can we, uh, can we figure out what is the level of antibody that we're going to require. So I know that it's, it, it is in the future, but it's also in the present. Yeah, no, that's the AMP study, right? So, yes. so um, it's VRCO1, which is one of the best um, monoclonal antibodies that's been shown, at least in animal models, to prevent um, HIV uh, exposure in, in a monkey model. So, um, yeah, it's quite an exciting study. Uh, it's for high-risk men, right, Susan? Is that high-risk men and transgender women, right? In the U.S. And high-risk women in Africa, yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the questions is one that was uh, touched on a little bit this morning about people who are co-infected with hepatitis B as TAF comes along. Are you going to be switching your patients or hanging loose? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think Eric was, was being cautious. I think the data are extremely strong that, that uh, TAF has activity against hepatitis B. 
um, both in uh, the switch scenario, Joe Gallant has presented that last summer, and then at the recent liver meetings, which maybe Chip was at, I wasn't there, but, but um, uh, they showed head-to-head -head comparisons in hepatitis B mono-infected patients with clear activity of TAF. So I'm quite sure that'll be um, uh, in the package insert for TAF you know, in some reasonable time frame. But, but I would have no, personally, I would have no qualms if I had a um, hepatitis B HIV co-infected patient and I wanted to move them to TAF-containing therapy. I would have no issue with that, even now. Uh, uh, so that's off-label, but, but um, I, I wouldn't have a problem. Okay. All right. Thank you very right. much. All right. Jen, have a Thank good trip you. back. So